This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You are listening to the Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast. Today, I have a special guest speaker who is not only involved in the world of technology when it comes to building cloud systems, understanding how data works together, and understanding the moving patterns of AI with algorithms, but he's also a publisher. Today's guest speaker is Rishal Herbens, who is the author of Grokking AI Algorithms, a new book out from Manning Publications on human AI systems and where algorithms are moving in the fourth industrial revolution. He's also a solution architect at Intellect. Rishal, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, I love that we're having this conversation here today because I'm a big fan of books, especially when they're technical books. I'm always learning to get better at code, and I love reading books from Manning. And there's always so many releases coming out, but I notice now what Manning's been doing is they also have these soft releases or these MEEPs, right, where the books are coming out chapter by chapter or over time. So I'd love to hear about what is the book that you've created and why you're releasing on a chapter by chapter basis. All right. Yeah. So the book is Grokking Artificial Intelligence Algorithms. Yeah. So it consists of 10 chapters that explore different AI approaches. The reason that it's being released chapter by chapter is that it's part of uh, Manning Publications MEEP, which means Manning Early Access Program. And the benefit of that is we kind of get feedback from readers as we release chapters, which allows us to refine and create a better book at the end of the day. So once all the chapters have been released and we get some enough feedback, the book would be then printed and finalized. So from my perspective, the major benefit is getting getting feedback. You never get things right the first time. And even after revisions, there's probably still areas of improvement, but I just find as um, the author of it, it's kind of helped me get some meaningful feedback from the intended audience. And that makes sense because in the world of software engineering, there's always revisions and feedback. You know, if you're coding, you might be using version control like Git, you'll have pull and push requests all the time. And so similar to what you're doing now in grokking AI or artificial intelligence, I know there's been a lot in the industry around grokking software engineering and grokking data science. But if you're a citizen data scientist in the industry now, you might not be familiar with what is grokking. So can you explain that term or demystify that for the listeners? Yeah, I think the term grok or grokking is to kind of gain a deep understanding 
about something, but through intuition and through kind of some sort of feeling about it. And it's, it's really difficult to describe because I see it as when you just get something and you have that light bulb moment and something just clicks. Sometimes it happens through a metaphor when a complex topic or concept is explained through a metaphor and it clicks and you're like, okay, wow, I really get that. That's what grokking is intended to mean in this kind of book and in this series. And that's what I intend to do with, um, with grokking AI algorithms to kind of demystify these algorithms that are sometimes underappreciated, including the modern kind of hyped concepts like machine learning and neural networks, but uh, to actually help the reader understand why it works and how it's useful to their day-to-day. I think you hit the nail on the head. If we think about AI, the last few years, there's been so much hype in this hype versus reality cycle. For 2020, Gartner came out with a recent report looking at the industry of machine learning and AI. And machine learning and AI is now in the mature sense of the cycle. So it's already moved past uh, the peak, right? And it's now where every company is saying, okay, we've hired data scientists, we've built out AI specialists, but now what? How do we deploy these systems? How do we demystify them? How do we uh, better understand this? So do you think that we're now hitting an inflection point in industry where people have realized there's more than hype, we need a rocket, we need to get an in-depth understanding? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, a lot of funding has gone into creating this kind of skills and this capabilities in different organizations. Some of the bigger tech giants have had a lot of success and I feel like they're a lot more mature than your average enterprise organization or even smaller company, whether you're a tech technology company or not. And we're seeing a pattern. I mean, there's a lot of solutions and proof of concepts that have been built that work in theory or work in a ring-fenced kind of environment, but perform poorly in production or you know, don't provide the value that was originally kind of envisioned. So I think a lot of kind of effort is going into understanding now, you know, what are the critical aspects to what we're doing with this technology? How do we understand it better? And how do we kind of target it or direct it in a better way, as opposed to, well, let's run a bunch of experiments and see what works. You know, it's so interesting because I was at the Strata O'Reilly conference in 2019, where all these new platforms are coming out with solutions from end to end solutions to hitting at any of the different levels of the machine learning lifecycle, which I generally think as data aggregation, doing a data understanding like feature engineering, then even doing feature enrichment, then the machine learning modeling, and then deployment. And, and anywhere in these stages, some companies say they have all five stages or just parts of them. But the truth is, a lot of solutions are performing poorly in production, as you just mentioned, Rishal. So in your experience or opinion, why do you think these solutions are performing poorly in production today? Okay, so my view on it is that it's not a lack of engineering or the lack of kind of know-how in actual execution. I think it's more from a strategic and kind of goal perspective. In any technology that we've built, especially software, at the end of the day, it came down to solving a real-world problem, whether that's a business problem or 
you know, whatever the case might be, usually it comes down to a business problem that you're solving. And I think what's happened is the net was cast wide and, you know, what problems can we solve and let's throw everything at it. And I think after kind of reevaluating, you know, the technology and what problems it's addressing, we're finding that it's not actually addressing the problems in a meaningful way because we just tried everything. Also, I think partly it's because people have been trying the kind of hyped up buzzwords because they sound like they're a good idea and you feel like if you're not doing it, you're doing something wrong. I mean, in a lot of the projects we've worked on, we found that classical machine learning approaches actually solve the problem better. And when I say better, it was more accurate and produced better results in production than a deep learning approach. So I think that's definitely an aspect to it. But my opinion is that from a kind of global decision-making perspective, the stakeholders involved there, the different people involved there need to have a better understanding of what problems the technology is solving as opposed to just simply using it or implementing it for the sake of it. And I think that is what we're definitely seeing in 2020 because every team now has data scientists and AI specialists and data analytics professionals and solution engineers. And they're saying, okay, well, we can't just implement it. What are we trying to solve? So it seems that there is a need for this now. And in the industry, there's been many terms coming up from explainable AI to responsible AI to ethical AI. I mean, everyone is really thinking, how do we create a better system that we productionize results? And my question that goes back to you is looking at these five stages of the data science workflow from collecting data to cleaning, to enriching, to doing the machine learning, and then deploying. Why are you taking a focus or an interest in the algorithms, particularly today? Yeah, so the focus on the different algorithms is driven by a theme or concept I mentioned uh, just a bit earlier. So instead of trying any new technique that you come across, I wanted to highlight the advantages of some of the underappreciated algorithms. So if we look at the book, the early chapters look at a general intuition of what AI is. And there's no complete definition that everyone agrees upon. So that first start of the book tries to build this intuition of what it might be and the concept involved in it. And then it goes to really primitive kind of concepts that we sometimes don't even consider AI anymore. So things like search algorithms, you know, back when they were invented, they were seen as AI. And now that they've solved the problem and we know how they work, well, we don't consider it AI anymore. But the goal of this was to explore these fundamental building blocks that have brought us to where we are today with a focus on on some of these lesser known or lesser leveraged algorithms, including uh, kind of biologically expired algorithms like uh, genetic algorithms and colony optimization. You know, these things that are inspired by nature that are really effective in certain scenarios, just not favored because deep learning or neural networks are, are the end thing at the moment. And with that said, the book does contain modern AI approaches as well. But the goal was basically to expand a technologist's or developer's mind 
in terms of what the possibilities are when being faced with a problem. There's no silver bullet. And uh, here are the advantages and disadvantages of the different approaches. Now, I think just as you mentioned, Rishal, there's seemingly an endless number of algorithms coming up every single day. And there's a refinement of them, whether we look now at the dozens of conferences, whether they're ones like NeurIPS, which was in Vancouver last year, whether they're focused on text or computer vision, it's just a seeming endless amount of algorithms coming out. But it may not be just the new algorithms. It's like you're saying, looking at the underappreciated algorithms, like these search algorithms that have been around for decades and have very robust performance. My follow-on to that is, what is the reason that search algorithms may not have performed well in the past? Do you think it might have something to do with memory, with compute, with optimization, with chip architecture? These are just some suggestions, but wanted to hear your thoughts on those underappreciated algorithms. Yeah, so I'd say specifically with search, it's mainly kind of exhaustive. You know, you had to kind of try every possibility to find a good solution, whereas you know, more modern approaches try to estimate a good solution. So the other thing with search or kind of traditional search is that a person would have to know what questions to ask. So if you're building a decision tree about should you wear a raincoat, you might ask, is it raining outside right now? If no, well, does the weather forecast say it's going to rain later? And then, you know, you, you work down that decision tree, but you have to know what questions to ask. What modern approaches in machine learning and deep learning try to do is learn from examples and learn from previously made decisions to figure out the questions. And this is where it becomes quite interesting because it figures out the questions, but not in the way that we understand the questions. It figures out some sort of weighting that means is it raining outside? But it cannot explain to us that it's encoded, is it raining outside? And that's, I think, where this kind of understandable AI concept comes into play as well. The other factors are, are not necessarily performance. So these more traditional algorithms were more suited to the problems we were trying to solve at the time. And modern algorithms are geared towards different problems that we're trying to solve now. But computing has definitely made it possible for things like artificial neural networks to become more prominent. I mean, they're not a new thing either. They were invented decades and decades ago. The reason it's become more popular is because of the easy and cheap access to computing, the advancements in that computing. I mean, our GPU or neural net focused processes are way more efficient than they ever were. And I think the other two factors is that people and organizations have understood that they can leverage data to gain some value out of it, whether it is to make better decisions, create more targeted products, whatever the case might be. And I think the heart of that lies within the boom of the internet. The only reason we have all this data is because we're completely connected. Imagine if you could listen to a podcast where James Delos tells you why he bought Westworld. Well, James Delos isn't real, but Christopher Slow of Reddit, Ryan Graciano of Credit Karma, and Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers are real. 
Code Story is a podcast featuring tech leaders reflecting on their human story in creating digital products. In the show, host Noah Labhart digs into the critical details about what it takes to change an industry, how a tech visionary got started building their world-changing product, and how they scale their product on their journey. Our tech leaders are not only brilliant builders, they are humans with a human story to tell. If you want to hear the real human stories behind tech, Code Story is the podcast for you. Subscribe to Code Story now on every major podcast platform or visit Code Story at codestory.co. So I think those three factors, this large amount of data that's been collected through connecting the world, the actual value that's hidden within that data and the kind of advancements in computing have allowed us to leverage these algorithms and, as I said, old algorithms that can now do some really powerful and useful things. Thinking of the old algorithms, again, the phrase we're using here today are these underappreciated algorithms like the search space. One of the core chapters in your book is intelligent search for game playing. And I think this is so interesting because we've seen in the news the last couple of years, whether traditional game playing like chess and Go or even video game playing like Dota 2 and League of Legends, traditional search powered by this massive compute now is able to reach performance at human level or greater. And it's so fascinating to me that as someone who grew up in his childhood competing in chess tournaments, it was so much fun and enlightening. And now to say, what, a machine can beat me at this? It's amazing. I mean, what are some of the insights or, or stories that you've uncovered working on that chapter about intelligent search? Yeah, so the game playing search is also sometimes referred to as adversarial search. It's essentially um, used for two-player games like chess. And the whole concept is centered around an agent predicting the future. So if I am an agent and I see a certain state of a chessboard, I would make a move and then simulate every move that my opponent could make and score that. And then I would do it again for my next move and again and until I run out of memory. And that's essentially how traditional adversarial search worked. And it worked pretty efficiently for its time. I mean, a lot of the classic game playing algorithms used adversarial search, and it is still useful today to some extent. But when it comes to uh, games like Dota and, um, you know, we see StarCraft, they're using something completely different. So they're leveraging reinforcement learning and deep learning. So as you can tell, in a two-player game using classic adversarial search, you would need to know the rules of that game and every possible outcome or every possible legal move and every possible score for that move. And in chess, it's fairly simple. It's fairly contained. We know that the pieces can move in specific directions. We know winning scenarios. We know losing scenarios. But in games like Dota and StarCraft, those become very difficult to document in detail. You're not working on a a two-dimensional space where you're moving pieces a few blocks at a time. You're working in a very fluid environment. It's almost simulating reality. Things can move in different directions at different speeds. They have different weapons that they potentially use. There's a lot of strategy involved in resource management in these games. 
So kind of detailing every single piece of information and representing that as a state and then trying to predict every possible future for that state becomes very, very difficult to do with traditional adversarial search approaches. So um, these newer techniques don't try to encode the game and the rules of the game, but they try to let an agent learn from experiencing the game. So um, in these examples, what uh, DeepMind, OpenAI, and uh, similar organizations have done is basically allowed an agent to play itself many, many times and figure out what short-term actions and midterm actions may result in long-term rewards, right? So um, it's a very different approach to the classical adversarial search. However, that still has a place depending on the, the scenario you're trying to solve. So in short, if someone in 2020 is faced with solving a really intricate puzzle game in a two-dimensional landscape, I would say adversarial search you know, would be more than enough. But a lot of people would, would try and use something more advanced because that's what they know and that's what's advertised to work, right? And that's why that, that concept features in the book, basically to lay out the options. And hopefully people think more critically about what approaches they use because sometimes a lesser-known one or an older one might be more effective. I guess it, if I had to sum it up, I'd like people to be more pragmatic because the more pragmatic you are, the more effective you are at solving what's important. I think everything you're sharing is extremely fascinating because when I work with students day in, day out, and they're going through coding schools and boot camps, the hot rage in 2020 is what's the new algorithm? What can I do in PyTorch? What can I do in TensorFlow? You know, what's the next big thing? But um, what I'm hearing, the consistent theme in our conversation today is we need to be pragmatic. We need to be practical. We need to get back to the basics and be thinking more about the data, thinking more about the techniques to solve problems. Just the other day, I also had a conversation with one of my colleagues who works in a Fortune 500 finance company. And they mentioned to me that they have this team of software engineers, solution engineers, data scientists, and they worked on this big project to make data speak to a problem and to present into an application. And the whole team got it working and it was beautiful and on time and on target and on budget. But at the end of the day, when the project owner spoke to the team and they asked, oh, so, so is the data good? Is the data clean? They said, oh, no, it's not in my scope, or I'm not sure if this was fully optimized. You know, they didn't really think about that. So it seems that there's not a mindset there yet. People are not thinking first about, is this the best path? Is this the best data? Is this the most responsible method? Why do you think it is we're not thinking like that yet? I think it spans more than just the data science and AI space. I think it's any technology or engineering-minded kind of individual is going to be interested in those sort of things. In our organization, we see that a lot at times with technical people who are brilliant at what they do technically are going to focus in that area, right? So let's, let's talk about something a bit different, maybe just general software engineering. You might have someone that cares specifically about how an if statement or a for loop is designed, 
okay? And as long as that's designed perfectly, they're happy. Without looking at the bigger picture of what is that statement actually trying to solve from a, a kind of bird's eye view, problem-solving perspective. What value is a business or an organization or a project getting from you writing that piece of code? So, I mean, it's with a lot of the work I do, I see technology, including data science, including software engineering or mobile development or whatever, you know, whatever facet of technology we're working in. I see it as a tool or a vehicle to deliver value or solve a problem that's more meaningful, whether that's to, you know, completely digitize a bank and make it way easier for their customers to interact with that bank and way easier for their customers to transact and get what's important to them done. Or if it's on the other side of things where it's not necessarily financial, but, you know, if we're trying to detect tumors from uh, different radiology pictures that we're getting, are we meeting that? You know, because on time, there's a difference between a successful project and a successful solution. Like you just mentioned, a, a successful project is on time and within budget, but a successful solution is measured by, does it actually do what it's meant to do? And I feel like that way of thinking is sometimes less appreciated in our kind of tech community because there's this deep focus on what tools and libraries and technologies and programming languages and you know, what are you using as opposed to why you're using it? What are you trying to achieve with it? And I think that's not just a problem in, in data science. It's a, it's a general theme, but I think we're getting better as we go. And to get better as we go, a lot of it is demystifying algorithms, demystifying AI and problems, whether they are business cases or solution engineering, oftentimes we have to cut through the hype around AI and see what creates a solution, what can implement to be effective. And so sticking on that topic of demystifying algorithms and AI, where are you seeing a lot of the noise or confusion that we can demystify for listeners today on the show? Yeah, I'd say around that topic, a big kind of misunderstanding is the glamour in building something with machine learning or AI algorithms. About 60, 70%, depending on the surveys you look at, 60 to 70% of a data scientist's work is usually understanding, cleaning, preparing, enriching, augmenting that data before it becomes useful. And even after you do all that work, you don't actually know if that data is going to solve your problem or not, right? So I think one of the big misunderstandings is that it's a very glamorous or lucrative kind of field to be in at the moment. And sometimes it can be, but I think that's more the things we see in the media than the norm. In most of the cases, your job could potentially be completely not what you expected and a lot of hard work to achieve a really good result from that. So I think that's one, one of the kind of myths or uh, misunderstandings. The other is that every solution should contain some sort of data science or AI element to it. And that's not really the case. So unless there is a clear use case, you know, that fits the use of some sort of either um, classification algorithm or reinforcement learning or 
optimization algorithms, right? Unless there's a real use case for that, it shouldn't just be taken into consideration. You should think critically about how you can build a minimum solution that solves the problem in the best way. Because technology gets stale, right? And I'm not talking about the hype around technology. I'm talking about actual code that's in production. After five years, 10 years in production, you feel like, okay, why did I put all that effort if we're going to rewrite this or evolve this? And if it's not solving a problem, it's not going to last at five, 10 years. So I think you need to think critically about the problems you're solving and how you're solving them and not just use AI or even other things like blockchain or you know, inventing cryptocurrencies or you know, whatever the, the next buzzword is. I feel like focus on first principles and you're probably going to be more successful. You know, we've spent a lot of time today talking about these first principles, talking about design thinking, seeing about how to build better systems from the ground up. And one of the areas that a lot of students I work with and people in the industry have been talking about in 2020 is about the fear of AI. Even though we're talking about design thinking here today, you know, there's always concerns about job losses and where's the industry growing and and how can people be part of the next wave? You know, if you were a student again today, Rishal, which we're always lifelong learners, so we're all students, but if you were just starting out again today, what's some advice or recommendations you provide to others about this fear of AI and, and what they can do to make sure they're being part of the future of work? Yeah, I'd say if I had to go back in time, and I've, I've said this a few times among friends and colleagues, I think I would have spent from a technical perspective and a, a growth perspective, specifically in the area of AI and machine learning, I would have made a bigger effort to figure out why math is useful in these concepts. I wasn't great at math and I struggled quite a bit, uh, specifically with calculus. And I just thought, well, I, I can't do this and I, you know, I can't really grasp it. I don't see the point in it. And only later after getting more into these algorithms, I realized the beauty and power of those theorems and those theories that we are learning in math. And a big problem is that the way they're taught doesn't show you the application. It, it teaches the theory and it teaches the proofs but you don't know why it's useful. And after you learn a little bit more about things like artificial neural networks or uh, statistics, you really get a sense of appreciation for the math behind it. So one piece of advice would be not give up on that and perhaps try and seek material or people or mentors or someone that can explain to you in a more human way how these mathematical principles work, but more importantly, why they're important. So I think that's a big, a big thing I would change. And that's partly why I'm trying to share this kind of intuition in a grokking way, like we described earlier, in a very visual way, in a very kind of empathetic way, where people can understand these very complex topics or t- uh, complex concepts more naturally, because I struggled with, with looking at it from a more theoretical angle. Well, Rishal, I am looking forward to reading all the remaining chapters of Grokking Artificial Intelligence Algorithms as they're released in the early release and uh, official release programs. 
appreciate you sharing with our listeners today on Humane about design thinking, about AI, and the next wave that's coming. Thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.